Check in with Hotelevate for insightful, engaging and relevant conversations in the world of hospitality today. Uh, good afternoon ladies and gentlemen. It's always a great pleasure to be at the Hixa conference. Uh, my compliments to Manav for having run this conference so professionally year after year for 15 years. It's a phenomenal achievement to my mind. Uh, Manav has spoken at length about uh, travel, tourism and hospitality industry. But I've always believed that how well we perform in this sector is essentially a function of how well the Indian economy does. Let me try and give you a perspective on that. Uh, it was uh, an American traveler, a great humorist, a great philosopher, Mark Twain, who said about India that India is the cradle of human race. It is the birthplace of human speech. It is the mother of history, the grandmother of tradition, and the great-grandmother of legend. And all the great instructions and assets of human civilization are to be found in India. But that was said in 1900. If you look at present-day India, it's growing at about 7.5% per annum. It remains an oasis of growth in the midst of a very, very barren economic landscape across the world. But the challenge for India is really to grow at higher rates of 9 to 10%, year after year, year after year, for three decades or more. And this is necessary because... 72% of India's population is below the age of 32. The average age of India is 29. It's the youngest country in the world. And the population of India will keep getting younger and younger and younger till 2042, whereas America and Europe will keep getting older and older. So 8,500 Americans will retire every day, 8,000 Germans will retire every day, and therefore, rarely has a country not created wealth when it has such light dependency burdens. And this, to my mind, is the biggest social and economic transition that is taking place across the world, that the population in India is getting younger and younger. So what does India need to do to grow at high rates of 9 to 10% year after year and take this high trajectory growth rate from 7.5 to 10%. So first and foremost, ladies and gentlemen, India had made itself a very complex, a very complicated, and a very difficult place to do business in. Many of you who've set up hotels know this. And therefore, in the last four and a half, five years, one of the key attempts of the government has been to make India extremely easy and simple. He scrapped a number of rules, regulation, procedures, paperwork. 1,300 laws have been removed. Uh, we've tried to digitize every single department of the government. We've said that there should be no human interaction. Every department must speak digitally. And uh, that's one of the main reasons why India has jumped up 65 positions in the World Bank ease of doing business. And we are confident that next year we'll jump another about 30 and our target is to reach the top 25 in the next two years. But India is a very, very large country. It's bigger than 24 countries of Europe. And the challenge is to make the states easy and simple. 
So how do you do it in a federal polity? So the first year, we said we'll make the states compete on 100 outcome parameters on ease of doing business. We made the states agree to this. The first year we did this, we said we'll name and shame the states. We'll make good governance as good politics. We'll put this out in public domain. The first year we did it, Gujarat came number one. The very next year, Andhra beat Gujarat. The third year, Telangana beat both Andhra and Gujarat. There was very heavy competition. But the good thing was that Jharkhand and Chhattisgarh, which are truly the mineral-rich states of India with huge natural assets, they did radical reforms and they came fourth and fifth. So my belief is that if you can push competition among states and start naming and shaming them, then large number of states will compete and they will do better. So first and foremost, I think it's important that we make India extremely easy and simple so that we can completely give a lot of freedom to the animal spirits of all you investors. And India, my belief is, can only grow when private sector enterprise truly grows and flourishes. And therefore, India needs to be made easy and simple. The second key thing is that while the rest of the world is talking about protectionism, particularly America and China, India opened up its foreign direct investment regime. We opened up every single sector, from e-commerce to defense to insurance to pension funds to real estate. Every single sector was opened up. And in the last five years, India's foreign direct investment have gone up by about 62% at a point of time when FDI across the world has fallen by 16%. 96% of this FDI comes through the automatic route. You don't need government approval, you just inform the RBI and money flows in. And this is quite unparalleled across economies. And if any of you feels that more opening up on FDI is necessary, please do let us know. We'll be very happy to open up more sectors. But to my mind, a lot, lots of it has been opened up for foreign direct investment. In fact, we are the number one recipient of FDI. We've beaten China last year at it. And our perspective is that we should continue to keep giving greater vigor and energy to this opening up. The third key issue I want to talk about is that in the next five decades, India will see close to about 700 million people getting into the process of urbanization. As I speak here today, every minute, there are 30 Indians who move to cities. The process of urbanization has ended across America, it's ended across Europe, is nearing its completion in China. But in India, the process of urbanization has just begun. And we will do more urbanization in the next five decades than what India has done in the last 5,000 years. Land, gas, water were all cheaply available. America had the luxury of living in New Jersey, traveling to New York, guzzling gas, creating big, big limousines, of creating cities like Atlanta, where 99.6% of the people travel by cars, nobody cycles, nobody walks. And therefore, that luxury is not available to India. You will, when India started its process of urbanization, 
land, gas, water are all scarce commodity. And therefore, India has to do compact, dense urbanization on the back of public transportation. And there are a lot of learning lessons, not from the western part of the world, but from the eastern part of the world, on how Singapore recycles its water, how Yokohama as a city has reduced 40% of its waste, led by a lady mayor of that city through household segregation, how a city like Kitakyushu in Japan became the smartest city in the world because the women of Kitakyushu rose in revolt and Ministry of Trade and Industry partnered them to recycle just about everything. And there are huge learning lessons for each one of us who are in the business of doing in infrastructure creation for the hotel. So you will have challenges of land, you will have challenges of gas, but if India is able to create a unique model of innovative and sustainable urbanization, that will be the model which will be carried forward in the rest of the world. And therefore, the future lies in compactness, in denseness, better livability on the back of public transportation. And this, to my mind, holds the real key. It's important to say this because cities worldwide account for just 3% of the Earth's land mass, but they account for 81% of the global GDP. 3% of the Earth's land mass, 81% of the global GDP, 76% of the CO2 emissions. And India, as you are aware, we are killing the lives of our citizens with air pollution. And therefore, how do we do innovative and sustainable urbanization and how do we clean up our cities is the biggest challenge. The fourth point I want to touch upon is that India has carried out massive structural reforms. Very few countries in the world in the last five years have carried out this kind of reforms. First and foremost, we brought in one tax across the economy, that's a goods and services tax. There were 17 different taxes, there were cascading impacts, there was huge queues at state boundaries of trucks and lorries being lined up. All that has vanished. We are in the process of simplifying it further, but it's like putting one tax across Europe. It's a huge, huge reform, and it'll get better and better as we go along. So goods and services tax is a major structural reform. The second big reform is the insolvency and bankruptcy code, which truly ends crony capitalism in India. There are many entrepreneurs in India who used to borrow money from financial institutions, not repaid back. Many never used to put their own equity. All that is over. The story is over. Those who won't do it will lose their businesses, and therefore, insolvency and bankruptcy code has brought in a lot of financial discipline. It has ensured better management, and it will bring in professionalism in the function of financial institutions in India. And very few countries in the world have been able to carry out such a radical reform. The third key reform is the direct benefit transfer. When I had started my career, most of the large sums of money used to tra get transferred from central government to state government, state governments to districts to panchayat. And one of our prime ministers said that only 15% reaches the poor people. But the government has used biometrics, and we are the only country in the world with a billion-plus biometric. We're the only country in the world with a billion-plus mobile 
And we're the only country in the world with a billion plus bank account. And we've used the power of what we call the jam trinity to transfer amounts of 500 schemes to people living below the poverty line with 100% efficiency. And we've saved close to 95,000 crore rupees by just using the biometric mechanism. And therefore, increasingly, India will become one of the most efficient economies in the world. The power of biometric will make India one of the most productively efficient economy in the world. The fifth point I want to talk about, the other, other key reform. So I talked about GST, I talked about insolvency code, and I talked about DBT, but the fourth big reform, radical reform, has been the RERA, the Real Estate Act, which has brought in discipline amongst a lot of builders, and many, many of us, who people like me, middle class, who paid money to builders, never got their houses. And this is, RERA is one of the big reforms which will ensure discipline in the real estate sector. And therefore, these are major, radical, structural reforms in the life of a country. And in the last five years, these reforms have been pushed with great political will, administrative energy, and they've, they will deliver results. Many of them have started delivering results, but you'll see the big boom impact of this in the next two to three years. The fifth point I want to talk about is that India is seeing a unique energy, vibrancy, and dynamism in its startup movement. Rarely has a country seen such energy. So you've heard about Oyo, you've heard about Ola, you've heard about Flipkart being bought over for $20 billion by Walmart. But let me tell you that it's not merely in these sectors. There's a girl called Pranshu Bandariu who's runs an app called Hello English and has taught 9 million Indians how to speak English. No school or college has been able to do this. There's another girl called Aditi who runs Imbibe, and she tracks students in Rajasthan using her startup, much like you track Uber longitudinally and latitudinally, and she tracks students on all the subjects and then provides extra dosage of education to those who are left behind and has made a radical difference to learning outcomes in Rajasthan. There is Ather Energy in Bangalore, run by young students who is doing two-wheeler electric scooters, which has the potential to be the Tesla of the scooter world. And you have Baiju, in which Mark Zuckerberg has invested his personal money and is making waves in the field of education. So I can go on and on and on, but the vibrancy of the startup movement is quite phenomenal. And many of them are trying to find unique solutions to the problems of India. The Silicon Valley has always been innovative, but it looks for solutions for driverless cars, for defense weapons, for war machines. Those are not the challenges which India faces. India faces challenges of recycling water, converting waste into energy, providing seed and fertilizers to farmers on a real-time basis, depending on weather and soil conditions to enhance agriculture productivity. Many of these startups are working in these areas, and if they are able to find solutions to the problems of India, they are actually 
they will be finding solution not for the 1.3 billion people of India, but for the 7.5 billion people of the world who will be moving from poverty to middle class in the next 15 years. And therefore, the market is not 1.3 billion people of India, but the 7.5 billion people of the world. And therefore, you will see a huge amount of disruption taking place in India because of this energy. Every single sector will cause massive disruption, massive upset, and established players will lose their status quo, and new entrants will get in. And this is important to understand. The sixth point I want to make is that India has actually become a unique destination for innovation. Many of us don't realize it, but a lot of innovation for the world, a combination of innovation, entrepreneurship, skill, has led to a lot of innovation at the right price points for the world from India. So Microsoft Bing was innovated in India. General Electric's low-cost ECG machine was innovated in India. John Deere's 60 HP tractor was innovated here. Philips low-cost sound recording machine was innovated here. Samsung's entire 3G, 4G, 5G work has all been done from India. Last week I was in Bangalore where I discovered Shell's entire process of converting waste into diesel and petrol for the world, matching BS6 standard has happened from India. And SAP's entire software development, SAP's entire software development for the fashion world has happened from India. So India has actually enabled a lot of innovation for the rest of the world, and that's why close to 500 multinational corporations have shifted their engineering, research and development to cities like Bangalore, Hyderabad, and now Pune, Gurgaon, many of these cities, which have become centers of engineering, research, and development for the rest of the world. And this is truly amazing. And they are driving innovation for the rest of the world. The seventh point I want to make is that actually India's engineering uh, is utilizing technology in many areas to leapfrog. I talked about biometric, but actually many of us don't realize that the billion plus mobiles that in India has, India's mobile data consumption is more than the mobile data usage of both USA and China put together. Our price of data is $0.2 per gigabit as compared to $6.6 in UK and $9.8 in the United States of America. We download close, close to 12 billion apps a year in India. And therefore, what is happening in India is huge amount of data. And this data, this huge amount of data is leading to India becoming data rich before it actually becomes rich. And this data richness of India is leading to close to 400 startups doing a lot of machine learning, analytics, using artificial intelligence to push financial inclusion for people living below poverty line. And therefore, physical banks will die out, physical bank managers will not be there. I have not used my debit card, credit card for over a year and a half, and I can assure you that India will be the first country in the world to make debit card, credit cards, ATM machines all technologically irrelevant. Because we'll all be using mobile 
using apps, Google Pay, Apple Pay, Samsung Pay, Beam, to drive all payments in India. And that's why digital payment in India has just boomed. And therefore, my view is that India will, across sectors, use technology to leapfrog in many, many areas. The last point I want to make is that India is creating world-class infrastructure. We're the only country doing 100 smart cities. We are doing 50s metros. We're doing an Ahmedabad to Mumbai high-speed train. Goods from northern part of India take 14 days to reach the ports on the western coast of India. By next year beginning, they will reach in 14 hours in a containerized train. So you will have world-class infrastructure. We just a lot of, we are doing about 36 kilometers a day of urban roads, we are doing about 170 kilometers of rural roads, and a lot of these urban roads we are selling off to the private sector as we are doing with airports. We just put out the bid and there was active participation for six private airports in India. Huge competition for that. So we are really pushing the limits of this. So I've given you the whole story of what's happening in India, but let me tell you if India is to grow at 9 to 10 percent, over a long period, India also has several challenges. First and foremost, India must push for gender parity. Only 28% of women work in India as compared to the worldwide average of 48%. Wherever we've created the opportunity, women have outsmarted men in every single walk of life, and it's incumbent upon each one of the men here to place women in major positions of responsibility, and that's key. India cannot grow at 9 to 10% without women playing a very key role in its economy. Number two, it will be very difficult for India to grow without manufacturing. India has essentially grown on the back of services sector, but India needs growth with jobs, and therefore manufacturing is critical, and manufacturing to global size and scale and your ability to penetrate global markets is critical. Number three, agriculture still accounts for a vast segment of India's population, close to 50%, and therefore you need radical reforms in agriculture. You need to bring in markets, you need to scrap outdated laws, you need to bring in warehousing, cold storages, better electronic markets so that the farmer is able to do away with middlemen and get the actual price. And last but not the least, let me tell you, if you look at the map of India, the western part of India, the southern part of India does very well, but on the map of India, there are 115 districts of India which do very badly in education, in health and nutrition. So you need growth with equity. And we run a program on the backward districts of India. We don't call them backward, we call them aspirational districts of India, where we make them compete. We've done this for the last seven, eight months, and we've seen radical improvements if you make bring in competition, real-time data, put it in public domain. Each one of these districts has radically improved in nutrition, health, and education. Phenomenal results out of sheer competition, close monitoring, and support through several NGOs. And lastly, I want to say that it's not possible for India to grow without jobs. And if you want to achieve high-trajectory growth with jobs, the answer lies in travel, tourism, and hospitality. The travel and tourism sector is one of the major creators of jobs in India. It accounts for close to 40 million jobs. It accounts for 9.8% of the jobs in India. Out of the total direct and indirect jobs that are created, 
is the travel and tourism and hospitality sector. And therefore, travel and tourism is what the politician of India needs. He wants jobs, he wants jobs, and he wants jobs. And this conference is being held at a time when we are in the midst of a great election. We are in the midst of an election when everybody wants jobs. And no sector can create jobs better, well-qualified jobs than the travel and tourism sector. The travel and tourism industry does everything but doesn't talk about jobs it creates. And therefore, the focus, the entire focus of this industry must be that it is the biggest creator of jobs in India. It creates the best qualified jobs in India. India creates jobs, but there is a challenge with wages. There's a challenge with the quality of jobs. Tourism, travel, and hospitality sector is the only sector in India which creates high-quality jobs. And that is what we should focus on and keep focusing on to every single politician in the state. These states cannot grow with jobs. These states cannot grow without equity. And these states, the only key catalyst and driver of this growth with equity has to be the travel and tourism sector. And therefore, we're doing several things. We've opened up the e-visa regime. Any simplification that is called for, we'll push for it. Over 150 countries, we've pushed for it. We've opening up the islands of India in a very innovative, sustainable manner. So you'll see a lot of bids coming out for Andaman and Lakshadweep. We are creating the biggest convention and exhibition center to push the mice market. In Delhi, we are creating the biggest convention center of Asia, much bigger than any convention exhibition center of Asia, close to Dwarka, which will have close to 13 to 14 hotels. We are redoing the entire Pragati Maidan, and that is the model which we are pushing for in every single metro of India. And post-election, we'll push for the opening up of close to about 100 railway tourism trains in India. So our belief is that we'll keep pushing for growth, for travel, tourism, and hospitality industry, because this sector provides the answer to India's biggest challenge, the challenge of growth with equity, the challenge to growth with jobs. You, all of you sitting here, really provide the answer to India's biggest challenge, which it is confronted with in this election. That is the challenge of growth with jobs. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.